yourself a sweet tea, pull up a lawn chair, and turn the page with us. You're listening to Right on Mississippi, a podcast taking you inside the minds of America's treasured wordsmiths. I'm Ellen Rogers, and Right on Mississippi is produced in partnership with Mississippi Public Broadcasting for the Mississippi Book Festival and the South Literary Lawn Party. We are here with Juliet Grames today, and she is talking to us about her new book, The Seven or Eight Deaths of Stella Fortuna. It came out on April 19th, correct? May. May 19th. And it was in the Indie Next book pick, which is amazing. It was a Harper lead read. Um, So, Juliet, we are so thrilled that you are here. This book is astonishing, and I tell, it's so great. I love tell all the debut novelists that I mean like a really good debut novel is my favorite thing well I am so so happy to be here and I'm saying this very genuinely and not in a pandering way at all I had the opportunity to visit Mississippi for three days last year and I was just so struck by everything here by by the book and literary culture by the food scene by how kind and warm the people were and so for me it's been a real honor to to attend the festival and to have a chance to get to know Jackson a little bit better so thank you so so much for having me we are so thrilled for you to be here and to talk I'm so thrilled to talk to you about this book um i've read i've read some about you i've read the book and so i want to talk to you just kind of about you and your i mean how you came up with this story but it sounds like your family history is the major inspiration for this yeah definitely so um the seven or eight deaths that Mm -hmm. are referenced in the title are this character stella fortuna has eight near-death experiences over the course of her very long life which lasts at least a hundred years and so the book follows her from her birth in a, a tiny mountain village in southern Italy, um, all the way through immigration to America, all kinds of family drama, especially with her sister, who she's very close to, and the bad luck things that happen along the way, the challenges she faces. Um, And the inspiration for it really was my own Italian-American family, and specifically my grandmother, who um, had a, a really kind of wacky life story and did in fact have eight near-death experiences herself. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So that was, that was my origin point. I was like, this is such a bizarre story. I want to try to write it as a novel. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. And, and so I, but I didn't, I I didn't want to write nonfiction. Um, So I ended up interviewing lots of people, both from my family and from the Italian American community. And then in Italy, um, in Calabria, where she came from, a lot of octogenarians and nonagenarians who remembered the 1920s and 1930s. Wow. In Italy. And, and I, I kind of synthesized a lot of their stories and to, to make this fiction. Well, I, I mean, it worked. And I just want to talk to you about like, how did you choose the, um, the perspective that you wrote from? Because that's a difficult one to pull off, and you did. It was tricky. So the book is written uh, mainly from Stella's point of view mm-hmm. in third person, but there is a first-person modern narrator who yes. interferes from time to time, and she introduces the story, and sometimes she interjects. And um, so I will say that I tried to write this as straight historical fiction, and I really admire writers who can just write straight historical fiction oh, absolutely. And, and not let their own biases and prejudices come to bear on the mm-hmm. characters just be very pure to the telling of that time but I'm not that person I'm not strong enough I had a lot of things I wanted to say, say about what you know I thought this protagonist was suffering mm-hmm. and, and so um so there ended up being a modern narrator who interpolates from time to time well, so that person was kind of you I mean telling your grandmother's story basically it seems to me well um the seven or eight deaths of Stella Fortuna is a work of fiction and any resemblance to persons living or dead is strictly coincidental <laughs> 
but yes, the first person narrator does have a lot to biographically in common with me as a coincidence, as I mentioned. So. As just a coincidence. <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, I was telling somebody the name of the book I was reading when I was reading it, and they were like, oh my God, that's the greatest name I've ever heard. I was like, truly, don't you wish your name was Stella Fortuna? But her name was Maria Stella. Yes. Which... I had never, there was another part, it's Maria Angela. Uh, yes. So it's like they put two names yes. together in Italy. It is very common to combine two names like that. Yes. And um, I, yeah, I, I took the name Maria Stella it, um, from uh, from someone I interviewed during the course of my research. I just thought it was such a wonderful name. Oh, it's beautiful. And I also like uh, nicknames in Italian. You often take the end of the name instead of the beginning, like most Americans do. So that's how we got Stella. They just kind of do things I don't know better than us I just feel like I, I, so I was telling you a moment ago I went to Italy a few years ago with all the women in my family we were there for like 17 days amazing wow. and yes and we I mean the art mm-hmm. I mean the way that Italians value art is just uh, something I truly admire and mm-hmm. then the food the relationship they have with food I mean I totally get that mm-hmm. um but it's all so good and so fresh and very yes there's not a ton of ingredients yes in it, you know it is very straightforward and it is just delicious I mean we would yeah. eat and then I would like begin the countdown on my fingers to when we could yep. eat again yeah <laughs> I mean, food culture is hugely important in Italy, and it was a big part of my research and my writing, um, yes. both both because, you know, I was writing about the 1920s and 30s, which is a very poor period everywhere very. in the world with the depression that hit globally, but also specifically in Italy, which was at that time um, newly unified. They didn't have a, a, the national identity they do now, and especially when you're um, talking about the Italian South, like I was, mm-hmm. and, and, you know, the majority of Italian Americans, their ancestors are from the south of Italy, not the north. Interesting. Yes. I did not know that. It is fascinating. And there's a long, long um, historical reason for it um, that I talk a little bit about in the book. But um, our roots are there. And I found that there's not a lot of southern Italian food writing that's out there. There are a couple really good books. But I really wanted to represent that, especially because these when you are poor, you spend a large percentage of your day trying to source food for your children. Absolutely. And, and so cooking well within those limited per- parameters really becomes an important part of, of day-to-day mm-hmm. life. And I found when I was interviewing these um, elderly people um, who remembered the 20s and 30s, one of the ways to really get them to open up to me would be to uh, have them cook. So we would share recipes together and, you know, I would tape record them or video record while we were you know, talking oh. about a family recipe. And, and so it became such a necessary part of my research. Um, and I did actually compile a bunch of the recipes I collected and put them on my website in case oh. there was, you wanted to read more. But oh, yeah. I'm so thrilled you told me that. Yeah, I need no. more food in my life well, right now. Calabrese food is from this region in Colombia. Calabria, it's it's really special. There's a lot of very special homemade pastas. They eat spicy. They put a lot of chili peppers I in. I love spicy. Yeah, so it's it's great. I recommend it. So, um what I had a, I had a thought and it left and we started because when we talked started talking about food. It's yeah. well, okay, I remember. Is it Asunta? Is that how you Asunta, say? yeah. All yes. Right, the mother. Yes. And, wow. Yeah. She is a force and just so the first when her husband goes to war and she is having to provide food for all her children, yeah. Number, Stella, number one. We mm-hmm. go into that. We won't go into that too far. But I mean, just the struggle. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so um, 
I, I also... And the meat, just no meat. No meat. Yeah, there was really... And this is something I, I knew from my grandparents. They had never eaten meat mm-hmm. before they came to the United States. Um, my aunt described they would kill a chicken at Christmas Eve, and that was really all the meat that they saw all year. Wow. And then, of course, Italians come here, and we become known for our red sauce culture and meatballs and sausages. And Absolutely. It's, it's just interesting how, I mean, the Italian-American identity is so built on creating prosperity in America after mm-hmm. coming from roots of poverty. And it's, um, you know, that Im- immigrant story I found just so provocative. And and I, I loved connecting with other children of immigrants and hearing their stories and, and kind of all of us remembering what our roots were and, and where we came from so recently. Well, I mean, we are a country of immigrants. We are a country of immigrants. And, and Italian, um, you know, Italian Im- Americans are like just a huge but part of the backbone of this country yes and i wrote this piece of historical fiction to honor my own family um not really hoping that this issue would be so much in the news as it is right now yes and um and i just think it's a really important time to think about our immigrant roots and what our forebears struggled through in order to get here exactly and um and also to remember the fact that it's actually much harder to immigrate now than it was when our forebears did come here. There are the, not the paths to citizenship that our grandparents had. And no. we should try to have compassion when we think about people suffering these same situations that our grandparents did. So I don't want to give too much of the book away, but when they are, you know, when Stella and her family are trying to immigrate for the second time yes. and Mussolini stops mm-hmm. all immigration, yeah. I was just like, yeah. my Lord, these poor people. Yeah. I mean, there, I mean, every emotion is gone through in this book. I, ju- it's, I just can't express how great it is, but I don't want to tell our listeners too much. I do want to hear about kind of your history oh, and sure. you are, tell us your, your job role. You are an, an incredible author, oh, but you, you also work for, I've been a book editor for the last 15 years. Amazing. I work at Soho press in New York city and I'm actually a mystery editor. Um, so Stella Fortuna is not a mystery, but I hope someday I'll, I'll get to write a mystery, but I think that's, you know, quite a challenge. So. I do love a mystery. <laughs> I mean, you know, so Tell us some. Tell us some people who are you know with the Soho Crime. Oh yeah, imprint. So, so the Soho Crime imprint specializes in international and multicultural crime mm-hmm. fiction, which is uh, just such a great mandate for me because I yeah. love foreign stories. Oh, I um, do. Um, uh, not foreign, uh, but certainly one of my favorite authors to work with is Stephen Mac Jones, who was lucky enough to be here at the Mississippi Book Festival last year um, and who just had a wonderful time and who just insisted that yes. we we come um, as well this year, which which is something I was so happy to do. Uh, but Stephen Mac Jones writes a, a series set in Detroit, Michigan, yes. uh, August Snow series. I mm-hmm. recommend that. And then do y'all, don't y'all do the Maisie Dobbs? Series? We do. Yes, we we uh, discovered Jacqueline Winspear. We published the first two books in the Maisie wow. Dobbs series. Um, you might also know Peter Lovesy, who writes a British detective series, or Kara uh, Black, who writes a French detective series. Yes, or Mick Heron, who writes a, a series about failed spies in um, MI5, which is very funny. So. I will watch any. <laughs> like I mean, I love any sort of British crime drama, anything mm-hmm. show book i mean i'm just so into it I, they're, they're just they're, british people are so funny they, yeah yeah mccarran is a funny guy yeah and they're <laughs> clever they're so clever and i just love i don't know i just really i enjoy their uh their uh 
the wry sense of humor. Yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Uh, yeah, they're yeah. just fantastic. So now tell us a little bit about your kind of you, – you, we're just telling me you've lived in New York for 18 years. Yeah, that's right. And you have moved to Rhode Island. I have. Is that just a huge change? Well, I grew up in New England. I come from Hartford, Connecticut, mm-hmm. which is the first half of Stella Fortuna is set in Calabria. And then they emigrate to Hartford, where there was a very tight-knit Italian-American community, um, part of the diaspora, Southern Italian diaspora. And it's where my mom was born and where she grew up. So um, I lived there before moving to New York. And I'm really happy to go back to New England now because yes. uh, you know I I love New York and and I loved working there but um returning it's exhausting to, it is really exhausting yeah I mean I you know I'm obviously I'm from Mississippi I've lived here my entire life I love going to New York one of my closest friends lives there but by the time I leave I'm just like my gosh I mean getting from point A to point B yeah is it's exhausting true. but you have the world at your fingertips basically. that's also true I mean it is the cultural hub of of the world. I mean, art for sure. I mean, there's always something happening in New York and it's all in your backyard. It's true. It's, I would imagine it's easy to take that for granted too, if you live there. Yeah. Or to stop being able to take advantage of it as Mm -hmm. you focus on your career or your family. And yeah, I, I, it's so expensive. It is very expensive. Yeah. Yes. All right. So you, you have children. You just told me. I have a baby. Yeah. I have a baby. Yeah. He's cute. I like him a lot. How old is he? He's nine months. Yeah. Oh my gosh. He is a little fresh baby. He is. I left him with his grandma so I could come to Mississippi and I regret it because I just wish that I could show him everything I've seen. What's his name? His name is Carlos. Oh, precious. I'm telling you, boys love their mamas. I hope so. I'm, they I'm do. hoping to raise a mama's boy. So uh, yes, exactly. <laughs> I'm they doing everything I can. Love their mothers. To I be watch. very Italian about this. Oh, uh, for sure, absolutely. <laughs> I, I just watched my nephew with uh, my sister, and he just thinks that she is the most incredible woman in the entire world. And I'm like, wow, you just have like, your biggest fan is just with you all the time. <laughs> That's amazing. I aspire toward that. So. Yes. Well, he's nine, so you've. And he's been like that his whole life. So you got you you got a good little while. So <laughs> I was talking to one mother yesterday, and she said, "Yeah, boys are like that until they're eleven and a half." She's like, "But they come back to you." I was like, "Okay, well, <laughs> you know, I think it's very different with girls and mothers for sure. Girls prefer their dads usually. I don't, you know, can't. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm I'm kind of partial to both of my parents. I think they're both pretty cool. Um, so. Well, it's funny you say that, though, because I uh, actually one of the things I've thought about more during the writing and then now publicity Mm -hmm. portion of this book more than anything else is mother daughter relationships. Yeah, because so they're so complicated. They are. And the book is set, especially the Italian portion. There's this era after World War One when when men were emptied out of Southern Italy, both because World War One was hugely costly in life, oh, yeah. uh, and I mean so many so many young men were lost, a whole generation. But then also um, people emigrated at that point mm-hmm. because they were trying to find opportunity, and there just really wasn't any. And that's when the diaspora really started, took off in the 1900s and 19 teens, and right after World War One. So when I was writing about this world, I kept getting women's stories. There were no men involved. It was oh, yeah. mothers trying to keep, raise children. Children on their own in a world where women did not have citizenship actually until 1946. So even later than in the wow. United States. Wow. So they couldn't control land. They couldn't control money, but they still had to be resourceful and figure out how to raise their kids. And um, and then Stella, of course, as she 
she's so close to her mother mm-hmm. and she has these very fraught thoughts about motherhood herself and Absolutely. you know um it's something I was thinking about so, so much during the time that I was pregnant and then had just had a baby. And, um, and yeah, so it was a, a very visceral experience writing this kind of mother-daughter story during that life period for me. <laughs> oh, I'm sure. Well, and then, you know, she has such a, well, I mean, Complicated. She, doesn't, she doesn't really know her father all that well, right. but what she knows about him is not so nice. She does not like him. And, yes. I, you know, yeah. I totally... Yeah, I, I I get that. I, yeah. I see why she felt that way. Um, but, you know, it just I would not have done well in that time period because the women were so beholden. Mm-hmm. I mean, they were to serve their husband. Yeah. And even though, you know, Asunta, you know, the father immigrated without his family to try and provide a better life. Yeah. And then nobody heard from him, but yeah. she still felt that she needed to like. obey and serve him yeah i was just like oh yeah well it's i mean it's very interesting the nexus of italian law which really only gave men any rights at all um and but also the catholic patriarchy i mean italy is a very very catholic place very and um religion continues to play a very big role there um but you know those the the patriarchy as it was in the 1920s and 30s mm-hmm. was very restrictive for women and in the absence of men that happened during this immigration period women had to be very resourceful and creative to just make things happen yeah and um and i mean it was certainly there are some very hard passages in the book they were hard mm-hmm. to write they were hard for me to research um some of the brutality of of life was really tough to think about my own grandmother and her sister going through but the flip side is that I learned these amazing stories about survival and resourcefulness, creativity, and the humor that they got them through these tough patches. And the the Calabres are famous for um for well, they're famous for being stubborn. That's definitely true. But <laughs> the other thing that they're famous for throughout Italy is their proverbs. They have these really, oh, really? yeah, often goofy, funny proverbs that kind of take um this hard scrabble lifestyle by the horns and make a joke out of it well i mean you can either laugh it's like that situation you can laugh or cry yeah that's right yeah but so so i i during the course of my research i, I went and i took a leave of absence and lived with a, a, a retired postman and his wife oh, in wow. um in this tiny village in calabria and they helped me collect so many proverbs we just would go visiting new families and collecting new proverbs and, and so i used a lot of them in the book but um i'll share one with you that's not in the book okay um so one of my favorites that kind of encapsulates this sense of humor about the patriarchy. But um, la gallina fa l'uovo, ma um, al gallo si brucia il cul, which means in Calabrese, uh, the the hen is the one who lays the egg, but the rooster is the one with the sore butt. Um, Which I think is just like the perfect encapsulation oh my of, you know, um, how people are like, oh, well, you know, this is the women got to just keep going and, and kind of pick up the brunt of the labor and like, oh, those men, what are we so going to do about them? Hysterical. Yeah. I, you know, Italian women that I have met, I mean, they're not putting up with any. <laughs> they are very strong and they do. They usually have a very amazing sense of humor, yeah. uh, maybe a little kind of. Not dark, not dark, dark as Oh, yes. Like, oh, certainly. Yes. But it's, uh, yeah, and I yes. love that. A fatalistic sense of humor. Exactly. Often also body. Lots of dirty jokes. My goodness. Well, I The first Italian words I ever learned from my grandmother and my great aunt were, I'd, I'd ask my mom, hey, mom, what does 
fill in the blank. Me, I'm sorry, I can't even say it on yeah. on the radio, even in dialect, because I don't, you know, I don't want to offend your listeners. And my <laughs> mother would be like, "Shh," and then be she quiet. and then she would whisper what it meant to me. I'd yeah. Be like, oh wow, why is my 85 year old aunt using that word when she's describing a cake? Why I don't is know. It so much funnier when an older person uses <laughs> profanity. I mean, I'm just like awesome. It's great. Yeah. It is great. Um. Well, so how long did you live? In- I uh, did three different research, research trips for about two, uh, well, two weeks eat for two of them. And the longer period, I went for the winter of 2015. And I just kind of, yeah, took a leave of absence from work and I entrenched because oh, wow. I felt like I could write about the American portions. I could write about the portions that I had taken from interviews and oral mm-hmm. histories, but I really needed to get the feeling for living in this village. Immerse yourself. Very different lifestyle. Mountaintop oh. villages. Everything is very steep and cold. And um, even though it's, I mean, in the winter and, um, and also very beautiful and, and people are still eating food that they grow themselves. They've really preserved a lot of what they were proud about in their farming lifestyle, even now in the 20 teens. Well, I mean, you know, food that someone actually grows like Mm -hmm. vegetables from a garden. So tasty. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I mean, it's just like, it's not even the same species as what you get in yeah. the grocery store. Yeah, no, it's not. It is so yep. delicious. And yep. that is the food over there. So fresh. Yeah. And I hate to sound so Italian. cliche, <laughs> but I mean, like, there's a lot of love in the food yes. over there. Like yeah. pasta. I mean, like, you just don't do that. Because, yeah. I mean, that's yeah. making pasta. Yeah. That's another proverb that so many especially wives repeated to me that if when you do it with love it's not work yeah. which i thought was something i That's really beautiful i really wanted to imbue wow. asunta with that philosophy because mm-hmm. she loves her children so much and she does these crazy things to to keep them alive but it's not it you know for her it's just you know it's a, an act of love to do that kind of really physical she work. was an incredible character oh thank you i mean they asunta and antonio are just the antithesis of one another yeah. Um, so, I mean, like marriage can do that (laughs) as much as I disliked him. He was a necessary thing. You know, I mean, like the, the villain is always, there's really, there's a, the story is not there if you don't have that, that person. Well, I think Stella, you know, Stella fights against her father her whole Mm -hmm. life, but in some ways rebelling against her father, she's really fighting herself as well. And, and, um, it's the struggle of a lifetime to figure out what you want and then to figure out how to get what you want. And, um, you know, Stella is very stubborn and clever, but uh, she also has all these restrictions placed on her by her society. And, and, um, and so, so that, um, was such an interesting character for me to try to develop. Yes. Tell me, and her sister, Tina, say say her full name. So Tina is short for Conchettina. Okay. Yeah. I knew I was not saying that correctly in my head. Yes. No, it's, (laughs) Your accent is perfect. I mean, I'm like, I'm like, Concertina. No, no. (laughs) (laughs) If you grow up with it, it's a, yeah. I, um, um, probably Auntie Tina is my favorite character in the book because she's the one other, all the other characters are fictional inventions, but Mm. she's some, I just sort of took wholesale from my own great aunt oh really who was really the source of inspiration for this story um and i will tell you very briefly um 
the so my grandmother who who inspired the book because of her near death experiences yeah. was always a cipher to me because when I was five years old she had a, a brain trauma and ended up being lobotomized. Okay, so that actually happened. That to your happened. Yes, wow. that that is a true story that is um, a jumping off point in the in the fictional narrative. And um, what happened was my my grandmother and my great aunt together raised me. They took care of me while my parents worked, and I was very close to them. And this um, accident happened when I was five, oh. so I was old enough to realize how traumatizing it was, it was for the family. We now had this um, matriarch who had been lobotomized. And um, and the the hardest part about this was that when after the op- the operation, the surgery, she would never speak to her sister okay, so again. That, oh my gosh, that really and happened. It did. And they were, they oh. were, they had been best friends. They had married best friends. They had raised children together. I mean, it, they, their lives were completely interlocked. And now suddenly because of this medical event, they could never be in the same room again. And I think starting from the time I was five years old, I wanted to overcome compensate for what my aunt lost. She lost all of her children and grandchildren, basically, because she hadn't had been able to have children uh-huh. herself. So she, so her relationship with my mom and my mom's generation was very close. And I, like I said, overcompensated for what she lost by trying to be very close to her, oh. you know, to collecting her oral history I'm trying to write about her yeah. and she was such an amazing force of nature and I just took her pretty wholesale and put her down on the the oh, page and bless her. she sounds incredible oh I I mean I really loved her she was she was a, a well I mean she's lady. an incredible character <laughs> in the book so I mean and like you said you just took her wholesale that's great I mean she's I can't believe that your grandmother actually yeah. had to be lobotomized. lobotomized she did yeah I just think of that being so brutal and kind of like a barbaric thing it was in it was in this is in the late 80s and at the time the procedure was experimental and they didn't think she would survive it and i understand now it's actually done frequently and uh, we were just lucky that there was this cutting edge facility that happened to be cutting edge literally that happened to be (laughs) near us in hartford that was able to do it but she survived and she had a miracle recovery and she lived for 30 more years but did she lose pretty much impulse control yes that's exactly that was the main problem problem because i she she had um otherwise she she seemed i mean she was in other ways inhibited she would screw up which language she would speak or you know couldn't tell reality from what she'd seen on tv but um but the impulse control was the worst so she would actually she woke up hating her sister and she would try to do her physical violence so it was um it was a very extreme situation to have um, an elderly person who needed this care but also would lash out at her sister who was her primary caregiver and one of them. And, um, yeah, it's, and, but they were, they were really, you know, yoked in, in life, I think, despite 30 years of not speaking to each other. And my grandmother passed away last summer and then her sister oh. died only a couple months later. So they oh were, my gosh, they I were know, just truly connected. They were t- really, and I mean, to the end, my, my aunt would say, I just, I just love her. I just want, I, I don't know what I did wrong. And, oh, I'm going to start crying. Oh, well, I'm pregnant I mean, and hormonal. Oh, I mean, like that is, no, I mean, oh, it, wow. and it was, it was just, that was, I think one of the reasons I had to write this book. Cause oh, yeah. I, I wanted to honor, um, I want to honor my aunt and all the things she suffered to, to oh, take care of her family. 30 years. 30 years. But I also wanted to honor my grandmother, Mother, whose, sure. whose true identity had been lost with the with the lobotomy and who couldn't tell her own story anymore, um, oh. you know, because of it. So I, I just, you know, I think about beginning older and I'm just like, if my mind goes, I don't. Yeah, it's, it's a, my don't. greatest fear as I, well. 
to not be Alzheimer's able to. Alzheimer's mm-hmm. is truly my yes. greatest fear. Yeah. What was that movie that came out? What Alice Forgot mm-hmm. with Julianne yeah. Moore? And everybody's yeah. like, did you see that? I'm like, no. Yeah. yeah. I don't need to. Yeah. I mean, that is truly my greatest fear. Yes. It's definitely loomed large for me um, growing up with my, my grandmother and seeing her form of dementia, which was medically induced. So yes. different, but still, it's it's something, especially the idea of losing your own story and your own ability to tell it is terrifying. Yeah. And so my, my mother's mother had Alzheimer's and her body was fine. She was physically just fine. and But she was just a prisoner of her own mind. She was terrified of all of us. We done. Yeah, that wasn't supposed to happen like that. <laughs> I was yeah. so do I, do I need to track back a little bit? Just a, just a smidge and then wrap. Okay. Um. So yes, my my mother's mother also had Alzheimer's and her body was fine. She was physically totally okay, but I mean, she thought that what she thought was that we had all gone crazy. Yeah. And so she was terrified all the time, mm-hmm. and I'm just like that. I just. Mm-mm. Well, I do hope that this book is read as a peon to our mothers and grandmothers generation and especially that um for me for writing it was an act of compassion toward the misunderstood grandmothers of our past who may have had difficult lives where they did things that were unattractive or unfeminine yes. to keep their families together and if if anything i hope that this inspires um readers to look at their own grandmother's stories that may have been difficult or unattractive and to ask why why did she do those things grandmothers are just unbelievable yes, people they're it's i think that's going to be awesome <laughs> to be a grandmother to be such an incredible force and like influence on somebody's life mm-hmm. so i guess we both have that to look forward to so but Juliet, thank you so much for being here with me today no, and talking you, about Ellen. this book and just your life and how you got your inspiration. Um, everybody, please pick up this book, The Seven or Eight Deaths of Stella Fortuna. Um, I've just perused all the reviews on Goodreads. You have so many incredible reviews on there. Um, it's just, it's a great book. I love a family epic. I mean, this that's my favorite thing. So... Um, this was right up my alley. And so thank you for writing this. And I, we can't, I can't wait to see what you do in the future. So thank you for being here. Oh, thank you, Ellen. And thank you, Mississippi. I'm so happy to we be here. We are thrilled you're here. We love having you. Thank you. Right on Mississippi is produced in partnership with Mississippi Public Broadcasting for the Mississippi Book Festival, the South Literary Lawn Party.